I'm still going to go always to the end point. I actually, you have to get to into that environment and hear and see and feel and smell and experience all those kind of things that go on that daily basis. Not just the performance that you see, but the training environment. You know, the biggest thing I think a young practitioner can do is not learn more, but actually learn where where that's going to be applied. Well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. It's fantastic that you've tuned in. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist focused on supporting elite athletes and high-performance teams over the last 25 years and now director of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learned from sport and business and education to those hoping to find a better way to create performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose and the origins of high-performance And I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who've achieved right at the top end of performance, those people who've been the driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. So we are founded in sport, but we're equally keen to explore performance in many other industries, such as the arts, business, military, education, and so many others that are supporting and championing an idea, a goal, other people, or a cause. Thanks goes to James R. 1986, Liam Oliver 96 and Sabid for your reviews on iTunes the last couple of weeks. Much appreciated and we're really chuffed that you're enjoying the podcast. If you too are enjoying the podcast, it'd be wonderful if you get a chance to pop your thoughts on iTunes for us. So in this episode, I discuss with Jamie Pringle from Performance Science Distillery and Rosie Mays from the EB Centre about the lessons learned from the front line of working with elite performers. And just as we explored with Adam Conlon on episode 15, Tony Minicello, episode 10, Vern Gambetta in episode 4, and Emma Gardner covers this nicely in the 2017 conference podcast, we discuss the essentials of that initial engagement, getting clarity about the roles and what you're doing, uh, the environment, and how that can clue into the things that you need to tune into to work effectively, the culture of high performance. We also talk through the attitudes and the outlooks necessary to thrive and some of the top tips of what to do and what not to do to work with elite performers. And importantly, explore how this changes under the pressure of competition. Okay, so we're going to talk today about lessons from the front line. So what is it like working with some of these elite athletes what are some of the lessons that we've learned along the way about the decision-making, the cultures, the pressure? What is it like actually working with this rarefied talent, these extreme specimens of the human population that put themselves in the, on the start line, expose themselves to the thousands of, of people cheering and the, the people at home, and, and go for it? So um, let's have a little, let's dive into this and think about you know, what is it like, Jamie, when you when you first work with uh, an elite athlete or a household name, and uh, what are the challenges? What's going through your head? Well, I think the first thing you think is, what can I do? What can I give? What benefit can I bring? What's my role that I can add? But actually, I think what you soon realise, or maybe maybe you don't soon realise, maybe it takes a bit of time, a bit of hindsight, is actually that environment you're stepping into. That we talked about this before, the idea of the filter, the noise. And if you bring in noise, you're not bringing clarity. And so I think for me, we're, you know, when we're, what we're trying to go with here is trying to figure out your role, 
trying to figure out the role that you can offer. Um, but you come with content in your mind. And actually it's more about understanding what's out there mm. and, the, and how that um, environment works and how that culture works and how the people are in it are working. So you mentioned role there. So um, for a lot of teams, performance teams, um, if, if it's a Formula One team, they'll have a chief engineer. Mm. But you, you, what you're implying there is that almost you need to create your own role, even if you're stepping into to a role that was is existing before. To a point, yeah, that's an interesting one. If there's a precedent, then there's an expectation. You know that people will think, well, that person before who did your role was did, used to do this, this, and this. And you might not be the same person. You might not have the same skill set. Or if you have got the same skill set, you might have had very different experiences. So the way that you apply that skill could be different. Um, I'm still going to go always to the end point. Now, actually, you have to get to into that environment and hear and see and feel and smell and experience all those kind of things that go on that daily basis. Not just the performance that you see, but the training environment. You know, the biggest thing I think a young practitioner can do is not learn more, but actually learn what, where, where that's going to be applied. You know, and actually get down, if you're getting down to the side of the pool in the training session, getting in the pool in the training session, you know, the, kind of the classic thing of actually getting an empathy for the people you're working with. Because that's where the respect comes, and that's where the trust comes, and that's where the, the business comes, because that's what allows you to do your thing that you want to add. But if people don't understand how you appreciate and empathise with what they do, you never even get close to it. So actually keeping your head up and sensing the environment and the culture, I've got, I have got this slightly weird version of you wandering around sniffing, <laughs> smelling the environment out and then falling into the pool. <laughs> but, but when you're sat down with an athlete for the first time, and that's, you, you, you get to know people on a social basis, you, you get to see people starting to under fatigue, you know, when they're tired, when they're, yeah. when they're um, up for a, a challenging session. Um, but at some point, the lens will start to switch to you and they will come to you and say, okay, what do you think? How mm. does that feel? Well, first of all, I, I think that question, what do you think, is quite a seminal moment. Mm. I don't think it happens as early or as often as people might think it does. Yeah. If I'm an undergraduate student thinking, oh, I got these great ideas. Postgraduate student, I now know about these ideas, I'm an expert in them. People are going to want to know about this. <laughs> That question, what do you think, mm. very rarely happens, very rarely happens. So what comes before that? What, what, what are the landmarks along the way before someone might say, yeah. I, now, I now want your opinion? I'll give you a really good example and a good friend we both know, we know, we know him well, who was working with a very, very successful group of triathletes, very, very highly qualified nutritionist. He knows his stuff. He's one of the best in the world. His first role was the milk carrier. He would go to the training sessions and take cold milk with him. And at the end of the training session, he would um, be there handing out cold milk. And of course, you could say, oh, you know, the nutritional benefits of cold milk, lots of good protein in there, good rehydration, and so on. It wasn't, it wasn't just for milk's sake. But that level of empathy of you, you've been around at our training sessions the last couple of months, every Tuesday night. Yeah. And it's been in the middle of winter and it's been hard work and everything and you've seen blood, sweat and tears. And you're handing out the milk and we like you. And then you get the opportunity to then go and do a lot more work. So it's that, you know, the milk in the centre of the track example is always what stuck in my head. Yeah. You've got to walk 
two moons in another man's moccasins. Just want to give us that again. You want to walk two moons in another, in another, another man's, man's moccasins. Not literally. No. But carry them on her. Yeah. So what is that? That the the milk carrying, uh, <laughs> or they, they call it the water carrying, didn't they? The, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's about being able to have empathy for the situation, the scenario, the pressures, the environment, the things that people have got out on their plate at that moment in time. And of course, these are high-level performers that you see on telly and you see them winning Olympic medals. But actually, the graft is done on that Tuesday night in the middle of December when you know they're doing their intervals and. It's hard work, and uh, that's where you see it, and you've got to live that in, inside and out, day in, day out. Mm. So what's that, what's that demonstrating, Rosie? What are, the, what are the characteristics that, in the initial phase of, of immersing yourself into a, someone else's world, someone else's mm. goals, mm. What, do you, what do you demonstrate? I mean, what I was picking up from that is, often the scientists will be quite uh, knowledgeable and successful in their own world, but they're not in their world anymore. So. Mm they no longer are the centre of their world. Someone else is the centre of that system they're in. Mm -hmm. And I think letting go of your own importance in service of the athlete or the coach is a really big lesson that I had to learn, which is, you know, similarly coming in as an academic, I knew what the science was. And you're dealing with people who aren't interested in the science. They just want to get better. You know, so whether I was a, an athlete myself at the elite end, I just wanted someone to help me get better, or whether I was a coach who would be very sceptical of anyone coming in and disrupting my way of doing what I was doing, yeah. especially if I was quite bright as well, who was this scientist who was going to tell, tell me something that I didn't already know. But then you start to realise, actually, they have got something to offer, and they will help me, and I stay open to that, then... Even as the coach, if you're always saying, how does this help the athlete? So that, that's what I picked up, you know, and a lesson for later life. Mm. The world doesn't revolve around you all the time, although you are the centre of your own world. Do you think it's an, is it an empathy? Would you, it, would you put it in that box or is it a, a little bit different from that? Because the example I always think of is um, some of the, the team sport worlds are quite... Um, stepping into those worlds, they have a culture of their own. Yeah. You know, they have yeah. an identity of their own. Yeah. And actually your ability to go and work there as a scientist who hasn't maybe played the sport or coached mm -hmm. the sport could be, I don't know if it is now, but it certainly was 20 years ago, harder to do. If you, weren't, if you hadn't worked in soccer as a soccer player or a soccer coach, you then working as a scientist in soccer yes. would be pre pretty rare. Yes. Yeah. Now, in other sports where it's maybe more of a, you know, a dare say easier to understand more linear energetic mm. racing mm. sports the physiologist for example my role has a clearer kind of recognition and identity because I you know this is a physiologically determined performance which has some easier aspects to work with but also has some more difficult ones but I could probably work in a sport like that any sport and apply the same model yes more easily than yeah. I could in soccer for yeah. example I think there's sports where there's a team dynamic and a team culture and a culture that is going to be unique to that sport, that's going to be unique to that country as well, that as a scientist working with teams and squads, there is a need to understand the vibe of what's going on. What are the unspoken rules and the spoken rules that you need to find out as a support scientist or as anyone coming into that environment that you know 
how to get out the way and not get in the way of yeah. the performance. And there's quite a bit in, in the business world about cultural intelligence and cultural intelligence being how interested are you in learning about the culture? What do you need to learn? What do you do with that learning and how do you apply it? Mm. So if you're going to China or India, you know, how interested are you about how you behave when you go to China? What are their mm. customs that aren't mm. British customs? I think the same in performance sport. If you are not used to that elite performance environment, going in to, to pick up the vibe is absolutely essential because otherwise you're going to be you're going to be getting in the way. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the success of anyone who goes into any environment like that, is what do you have to learn about their world to be able to contribute the gifts that you have to give mm. you know, to them? You're not going in for any other, any other reason than it's about the performance at the end of the day. Mm. Go back to the milking simple, you know, that individual could have gone in there and started, let's do a seminar tonight after training on the benefits of... You know, protein in your recovery from exercise and hydration, and yeah. it would have fallen yeah. flatter than a pancake. Yeah. But you know, and that individual knows his stuff, so yes. he could have easily, credibly talked about that yeah. and with a lot of detail. But that wasn't what was required. There's the thing I think you're picking up on is there's something therefore about the highly successful sports scientists and applied sports scientists will be something around their humility and their ability to put their own knowledge and wisdom in its yeah. rightful position it's, it's in the relationship. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's humility and credibility yeah. at the same yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you can be very, very credible, but actually you've got to be very humble. Yeah. Because it's not your environment that you're ste- not your own world that you're mm-hmm. stepping yeah. in. It's not uh, about you. No, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often think in terms of the, the when you're recruiting people that um, if they come in and tell you something then they're not ready. If they come in and ask questions, then they're ready. Yeah. If they ask good questions, then they, you know that they're going to be a, a high performer. And the, the difference between coming in and telling means that I've got something that you should be listening into, as opposed to I'm interested in you. I've got questions to ask you, but also that that initial phase, mm. there's a, there's an opportunity to be slightly naive mm. and to to ask mm. some of the questions that could really not only frame it on their on their behalf, but also that um, you, you're extracting valuable information yes. that means mm. that perhaps your initial idea that you're going to launch, well, that's probably not the best one. I've got a, now I've got a, an idea that something they're really interested in that I can, yes. I can I'd, press. I'm sure we could all call upon examples of people we know, experiences we've seen and, and things, but I can think, as you're just describing that, straight off the top of my head of a few examples of people who have done that really successfully. Young practitioners who have taken that step back from their own con- you know, context and their own experiences and, and gone, I'm just going to go and ask why. Yeah. Not in an annoying way, not like, why, why, <laughs> why? but why, tell me more, that's yes. interesting. Yeah. And having that real curiosity, curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but curiosity that's translated into that humility to, to, so the person goes, this person is interested in me. And I think there's another piece, as you're in that space of sensing what's going on, I, I think with time you get to pick up the dynamics, the, the unspoken dynamics of the culture, yeah. that you actually bring that insight that you can feed back in a way to say, this is what I'm noticing. If the coach is interested in, you know, what are you picking up as someone, as an outsider? Because, mm. you know, there's a saying about the fish is the last to know that it's swimming in water. 
and you're the person coming in to say, well, what is going on here that actually I can see from my experience? And you may want to hear it or may not, but holding that, knowing that, that you're bringing something in, mm. uh, I think is an invaluable role you play in that initial stage. Uh, and the, the other quality that came out with this humility was this, the sense of patience, isn't it? Yeah. Knowing the time will come, the time will be right for your intervention or your insight or your input. And it's being patient to find when that time is best, when that window's window of opportunity opens. And so in that sense, it, there's, there's almost a compulsion to be able to point out the bits that could be improved. Right from the right from the outset, but that's not a good card to no, play from the advice's back. No, <laughs> but if you're able to demonstrate your ability to observe and discern and articulate what's going on from a positive point of view, yeah. that's yeah. probably the best advert for them to turn around and say, "Ah, you've got it, you've sussed it." Yeah. So yeah. then, can you spot the the opportunities for yeah. us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. In terms of, in, in, we're talking about developing rapport here, we're talking about acceptance with individuals within an environment, uh, picking up the, the subtle signals of, of how it works around here, which I suppose is the, the essence of a performance-based culture. Yeah. Um, we're talking about carrying milk and not falling into the swimming pool, but we're talking about demonstrating commitment to other people's goals and, yeah. and showing that you're there for them and not necessarily for your own end, which it might be, or, mm, you know, obviously yeah. when your own career and identity. How does that change then when, as you start to get to know the performers and you start to be part of the furniture a little bit more? Do you lose mm. some of that uh, naivety or are you able to start to move through the gears? You do lose naivety because you become familiar with your, you know, the, what's going on around you, but I think the curiosity that you still have yourself, you know, and, and you're realising that the relationship is based on um, uh, an understanding of each other's role, the, the role I can play to you as the performer or the coach, and the role that you expect of me, and vice versa. And I, I, you know, just as you were describing that, it made me think that that real clarity of I know I can offer this, my role in this environment with these people is this probably won't be the same as what those people are thinking you mm -hmm. do for them. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but there's a mismatch sometimes there, and the level of that mismatch might be manageable or might not. But I'm, it was always an interesting exercise when you do that with a team of practitioners, when you get them to describe each other's role, yeah. or you get them to describe what they're recognised for, what they're identified for. Mm. And it's not the same. It's not the same when you ask the group, you know, you ask ten people about this one person here, you'll get of that 10 people, you get nine different answers. But you'll get some commonalities and then you'll get some differences. And the person who everyone's been talking about will go, I didn't know you thought about that. <laughs> but, so that's a really, that can be a really powerful exercise if it's done well. Um, but it, and I think it just illustrates, it highlights that my role for one group of individuals or one athlete and their coach might be very, very different. I might be taking exactly the same things to this other people over here, but they're expecting something very, very different from me. Okay. There's a versatility of your role, but there's also different expectations. Just seeing it through somebody else's eyes. And, and so as the, as the journey progresses and your relationships start to mature, what are the sorts of things that you, you should expect from a performance-based relationship? Probably less. Yes. Yeah. Not more. Yeah. The ability to, to 
now put, not, I was going to say distance, but it's more scope between you, the coalface, the activity, the environment, and just being able to have that ability to step back mm. and go, you know what, this person is more suited here. I think you're going to get more out of doing it this way. And that, again, is a humility piece, but it also is just a benefit of wisdom and experience and being able to see the scope of something, so doing less. Okay, so there's a... Doing more effectively. There's avoiding that culture independency, uh, which I think is a, an easy trap to fall into whichever world you work in, whether it's sport, business, or education. Mm-hmm. Um, if you culture dependency, you've lost, you've lost an opportunity for them to discover and take ownership in that sense. Yeah, but what you just described there happens. It's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. You want to be valued, yes. you want, and yeah. that's an immediate yeah. Yeah. shortcut to... It's never, never going to not happen. It's mm-hmm. never going to stop happening. Because people will always want to be valued and want to give, which is fine, but it's you know that kind of thing of just everyone being able to take that step back and go, yeah. it doesn't need to be about me. I think what I experienced when I was coaching international sport was the recognition that a lot of the work you do doesn't get recognised. Yes. And you sit with knowing what you've done has had the impact, but not necessarily uh, known to others. And, and I think that's why I think peer support, you and I would know what we do to help support and what it takes to help support the elite performers. Yeah. They don't need to know, but we'll hold a mutual respect amongst ourselves as professionals to know you don't get to that level of position and influence and responsibility without being good at what you do Mm. and therefore uh, that for me was what I valued most was the respect I got from peers whether it be scientists or whether it be coaches or whether it became coach educators. I I think also somebody else I remember somebody else saying this everyone comes into it thinking I want to be able to give something because I want to be recognized for it you know that's a a small piece of that medal Mm -hmm. which I can say is mine Mm It doesn't sit well. I don't think that works. Um, but but people have their own motivations. Yes. They want yeah, to be yeah. associated yes. with success, yeah. and they they want yeah. to be uh, attributed to a successful outcome. Yeah. Uh, even the most altruistic, wants yeah. to, you know, yes. the most altruistic nurse wants to see the person recover and go on to a vital life. But that comes back to realities of, of this in terms of what can I actually do as, as a practitioner, putting that hat on. And it is all the things you said, you know, the, the, the athlete might, in their interview after, their, when they've got their gold medal around their neck, might thank, you know, a number of people. But there'll be tenfold more people yes. back at home who have all, in their experience, in their history, have influenced them, got them, helped them get this. And just because they haven't acknowledged them at that moment in time, it still means they're really, really important. And, you know, that as a practitioner, just recognising that you can be a contribute to that journey yeah. at some shape. And it might not be something you're doing now, it might be something you did 10 years ago. Well, that, that does point to the sort of rocky road of progression that, that athletes go through, the resilience they have to demonstrate, that the inevitable setbacks, even if you're the same bolt, you'll have, a, you'll have injuries and, um, and failures along the way. Yeah. Um, and I, I know a number of support staff and directors and coaches have been mentioned in athlete interviews What's the most common? It's the family. It's the support they've had in that pastoral sphere of, uh, and that speaks to a lot about. They were there when it was hard, and they yeah. were there when it was 
um, tricky, and I do, and I and I wasn't sure I was up for this. Yeah. Um, and that that speaks to what we probably have to do on a day to day basis of support the human first yes. and yeah. the athlete yes. second in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Because uh, uh, let's take that the other way. There's a risk that you come in as a practitioner and, and know that you've got a skill set and experiences and capabilities that you want to give, and you go and try and do that, but you will, it's not the right moment for it. Mm. Because you maybe only get a few moments, or much, and if you yes. mess up that one, you're yeah. going to get invited back. Yeah. But realities, practical realities of this, if I'm an undergraduate sport and exercise science student, the best thing I can do if I'm not doing it already is go and go and volunteer, go and do something, go and be there, go and be with those individuals. And also, you know, you think about the placements, the industrial placements that you can do between your second and third year. Students coming out of undergraduate courses with that experience, and to a point, it doesn't necessarily matter where they've done their industrial placement, it's the fact they've been in the workplace. Yeah. It's the most valuable thing that they can do. It's the best thing that will prepare them for their employment. Okay, so I'm interested to know how that relationship develops under pressure and I, I remember the first time I went to an Olympics and uh, you've got the division of whether you get kit or not <laughs> and it, it being quite really powerful uh, motivator, I want kit and I got a couple of shirts at the holding camp before the Sydney Olympics and, I, and every day they would put up right next to tomorrow is a red shirt day and, and I walked in and I was wearing white <laughs> uh, and I had this real sense of I, I'm not I don't feel like I'm in the team anymore yes. an identity and even though I'm still working with the same athletes but there's a pressure that increases as you get closer to the big moments how does the relationship change well I was just thinking of the the kit my experience not necessarily at Olympics was with uh, a rugby team going mm. into what was the old five nations and making sure you had the right kit and as a sports scientist, probably at that point, my relationship was strongest with the coach and the team management than the athletes. It was, how do I continue to support them? And having been a coach myself in a world championships, you get a sense of the pressure they're under and how do you make sure you don't get in the way, but how you very tunely attuned to what their needs mm -hmm. are. Uh, and I guess the same would be the same of the athletes, but it's it's recognising the pressure that's building for them mm. and what your responsibility is supporting them when you yourself might yeah. also be feel, feeling the pressure. And where does your, where's your outlet? You know, who do you have to talk as a scientist or a support staff to offload that? Because it's not going to be to the coach or the athlete. Mm. So I think that, that me mechanism is really important. I think the, the word identity is really interesting there because it's not just you know what you do it's it's what you're recognized for yeah. and in this case what team you're recognized for and the fact you feel like you're part of a team yeah. you're with other you know you have a shared identity with the others and i think i don't know if you can simulate that i don't think you can i don't think any experience unless the actual experience of doing it and being in it because it can be such an emotional thing yeah. you know it's an under pressure either be the pressure of performance or the expectation of others and so on that magnifies all of that yeah You've, you, what you just described, you would see even in low pressure environments, mm. people wanting to have an identity, wanting to have a the connection, sense of belonging. Sense yeah. of belonging. But there's an amplification of, Massive yes. of, of yeah. all of these things that tick along, they, they flare up on a day-to-day -day basis, but there's an amplification of that under pressure. I think the, the flip for me from being a, 
an observer and a, and a fan, I think I really want to know what the result is. And then as a, a support worker, I, I really want to know the result for them because I know them and value yes. their, yeah. the, them as individuals. Yes. As a coach, I, I felt an overwhelming doubt searching for signals of certainty mm. and that, that inner voice of uncertainty and, and worry being so loud. Yeah. Um, so the, at the moment of seeing your athlete perform and succeed, be it they win or they, they perform to their expectation or better, what's your immediate feeling, your emotional reaction? Um, are different, different under different circumstances. Um, for when I've been as a, a scientist at the fore and pivotal to a performance, um, and it hasn't gone well or mid-performance, um, I default to probably a noisy version of myself. So I remember during when the, the when Matt Pinson and James Cracknell did their double double back in 2001 and I plotted their recovery plan and they were going badly during those races and I started calculating the millimoles of, of sodium and potassium that I had worked through and thought I'd got it wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I've defaulted to, uh, to trying to search for that certainty mm. yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I think when we're all in pressure situations the, the, the bonds that we have between um, the, the strong relationships and the, the people that are close to us, they need to tighten and support each other. So yeah. you can voice these and you can, you can share it so that it diffuses um, as an outlet in some ways. Yeah. What about you, Rinsley, yeah. on that one? What, what's the immediate, when something goes right or something goes wrong, what are those feelings that you get? Uh, uh, when it goes right, you <laughs> sometimes thank God. Really? really yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, and when it... I was waiting for you to say that word. Really, yeah, and might. when it doesn't go right, it, it's the self-searching. What have I done wrong? What will this look like? Yeah. What part of it was my fault in this? You know, so it's yeah. the, the feeling of responsibility that you hold. And uh, uh, and it's just like no other. I, you know, I think as a, as a support person to someone going into the 2012 games knowing how important August the 3rd was for a particular performance at a particular time yeah you know that just focuses you so much to ensure that you're doing anything that you need to do and and not things you're not supposed to do yes. for that performance and then when it happens it's just like oh god thank well Steve Redgrave used to talk about going for his fifth gold medal and that anything less than a gold is, is failure and gold is just normal. Yes. There's no outpouring of surprise and exultation. It's mm. that's just normal. Stick or bust, you know. Yeah. I had yeah. I had a surreal experience at the 2012 games when uh, the person I was coaching, her team got the bronze medal in the team pursuit, and I texted her from Gloucestershire, my sister's house, and just said said something, and back came the risk yeah straight away really? and they were still warming down and I'm thinking wow this is this that's is surreal <laughs> I find that all the time I work with football clubs and I might 
get a load of emails from football staff on game day, but not between the, the week beforehand. And I think, again, they're searching for connections. Yes, yes. And that social yes. support. Yeah, is fine yes. And someone once, sorry, Jamie, sorry. someone once said, you get the emails and the texts when you're successful. It goes very quiet when you're not. <laughs> and so I learned... That's because they're phrasing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned then that if ever I was supporting a, a coach or a performer and it didn't go well, that's when they needed the text from mm. me the most. Yeah. Okay, let's let's pick one thing I want to just because it's from the performance perspective. You know, I don't think you see often that somebody will outperform what they do in training. Occasionally, it happens. <laughs> I think that's an interesting dynamic in itself. But yeah, yeah, but occasionally it happens because yeah. people rise to the occasion of, of performance. But the consistency in training and the consistency in performance in training yeah. is as good a marker of your whether you're going to actually be able to do mm. that on the day. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And so. You know, all the things we've been talking about, you, you shouldn't be surprised when you see somebody who does their performance. It should be, it is a relief when you mm -hmm. see it actually happen because you think, I know I've seen you do this so yeah, many times yeah. before. I think probably one of the best examples working with divers, high divers, you know that that routine, the number of dives that they do and everything within that, they've done it so many times before and that they only have those few occasions actually on the top of the board in that competition mm -hmm. with the judges watching. But there, that consistency of performance and practice is as good a metric, I think, as any. Okay, well, let's wrap this up then. And so if we're thinking about the what it feels like when you first get to know and tune into the environment or you, you're developing rapport with individuals um, or how it escalates under pressure in performance, what, what are the key take-homes for, for us all from the, the lessons of journeying with an elite performer? Moccasins. <laughs> Moccasins. <laughs> Moccasins. Wear them. Find, go, and, go and live in the, in the other person's shoes in their environment. See the, see the, the pressures, the dynamics, the culture. Mm. But also just get involved, get muck in. You know, uh, that kind of idea of being able to flex your style, flex your role, and be valued because you can offer you, not just what you bring in terms of your skills and your capabilities, mm. but you as a person because you've connected with the individuals around you mm. and they value you. Slippers. Slippers. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it's in the time all the way up to that, the relationship you build on a one-to-one -one with that person, where they trust you, they know you will hold their confidence, is absolutely critical. That they can then come to you if it goes badly, or come to you if it goes well, mm. knowing that there's a confidentiality between you and a trust. And I think that's a life lesson in itself, mm. is the, the, the trusting relationship is absolutely critical. Yeah, Emma Gardner, uh, nutritionist with the England uh, GB hockey team, she had a lovely phrase that she shared at the conference last year, which was, athletes don't care what you know until they know that you care. Yeah. And you know, that's absolutely the essence yeah. Yeah. of come with all the qualifications you want yeah. Yeah. or if it's in a different sphere come with all the background and, and working in Kinsey or yeah. Ernst and Young but you've got to prove yourself in yeah. this, this yeah. environment too. Yeah. If you'd like to find out more from Jamie and Rosie then you can follow them on Twitter Jamie Crinkle and Rosie Mays 49 and you can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and what supporting champions are up to at support underscore champs and you can subscribe through iTunes, YouTube, supportingchampions.co.uk and have a look at our Facebook group site too.